My name is Connor McGinnity. I'm 21 and I'm a student. That's my mum. She's playing the piano. I played the piano when all is well in my world. And I suppose so. I suppose because I don't play it very often. It's because life can be so turbulent and so difficult. I might only play the piano a couple of times a year. This is a personal story about our family. I live with depression. I've lived with depression for over 24 years, all of my married life. But I don't suffer from depression. My husband does. My dad's name is Peter. He's a teacher. He works in a school. And he suffers from depression. Oh, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of fighting it. In my family, there's my parents, Peter and Laola, my two sisters, Ora and Emer, and my brother, Sean. We all react differently to our dad's illness. When he gets angry, I try not to engage. You just can't talk to him. He becomes a different person. His base instincts take over. It makes Sean, he's 15, it makes him really nervous. Not really afraid, just like apprehensive that, like, you know, there's nothing you can do to stop it. That, like, in a while or a few weeks or whatever, he will explode again. I'm the eldest, and then my two sisters, Orla, who's 19, and Emer, who's 17, both react quite angrily as well. They try and confront my dad about his illness. I have a lot of anger, and I feel very angry all the time. Like, like I was saying, Orla, she gets really angry and like that's her response and it's kind of like her personality. I think I just get really scared. Um, with the aggression stuff, it just scares the hell out of me. You know, I'd say I'd probably just try and block it out a bit, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I cry a lot. <laughs> And um, there was kind of a process that I went through. You know, I was angry at first and then I kind of got a bit depressed. Well, maybe not depressed, but withdrawn from it. Then, you know, I began to accept it and realise that there's nothing I could do, just help in whatever way I could. And that's a kind of a process that I see my sisters and my brother going through as well. You know, my sisters would be quite angry at times, you know, and my brother would be as well. But I can see them kind of coming through that and starting to accept it and that kind of thing. My dad knows that he's hurting us, but he can't do anything about it. It's terrible for my own family. Here, here I am. The one thing that I cherished most in my life was my wife and my children. And here I am, destroying it all. I've decided to interview my family about what it's like living with someone who has depression. I don't think the kind of the perspective of the family in this kind of situation has been portrayed before and it's, you know, something that's close to my heart that I want to get out there. That's, you know, the main thing that we all, the, the five of us have to kind of all get along and we all get along really well, you know, we all spend time with each other. And, you know, Dad would be there, he'd be 
he loves gardening, so we garden quite a bit. Um, but when he comes in, or when he's, it's a meal time, you know, you you try and include him, in whatever, because you know that the more effort you make, you know, the less likely he is to, you know, react or get angry. So it's it's in everyone's best interest to include him and be happy and whatever. Dad had a tough childhood, and he hasn't been able to shake his past traumas. I grew up in a home where my, my father had a problem with alcohol. There was a lot of shame attached. You, you know, like I, I picked my father up off the street with his head split open and carried him home myself. As a child, that's what I did. You know everybody's watching you doing that, but you pretend they're not watching you. You pretend that it, it didn't happen or... Um, you know, you pretend that your family is okay, but everybody in the town knows that your family is not okay, but nobody does anything. 1984 was the worst year of my life. My mother needed help at home, coping with my father. So I came home, which was a huge mistake. And the winter of 84 and spring of 85, I think, I think that was the first time I was down where I couldn't cope anymore. My dad has lived with this his entire life. My mother married him without knowing what was wrong, and now we live with it every day. We met in 1985. Um, my husband and I, we both started work on the same day. And I suppose my husband, I could see uh, something different in him. He was quieter. You know, ironically, it's one of the things I would say about him, about him now, you know, that poses difficulties for him. You know, he's, he's not one of the lads. Um, and I suppose initially that was one of the things that um, appealed to me. We got close very quickly. We actually got engaged that first Christmas. We were in love. I was in love with you, with, with Slimey. Of course I was in love. But anyway, we were going out and everything everything was fine. I knew that I knew that my that my fiance at that stage. I knew that there were times he was quiet. I can see now there was a there was definitely a mood problem, but I I didn't recognise it at the time. Anyway, we we got married, had a, a beautiful wedding. You know, I, I know that. I felt very proud. We went to America on our honeymoon, which was quite a big deal. We travelled around a lot, and it was a very interesting honeymoon. You know, we did lots of different things. Um, when I look back on it now, I can remember my husband. He was He's quiet, but he would be quiet by nature anyway. My mother said to me on her deathbed, make sure that you are nice to your wife, because she had a tough life with my father. Hearing lots of new things, um, I was kind of talking to her about when they first met and what that was like, and I never really heard about that before. But, you know, when they got married and then as soon as they came home for the honeymoon, he had a, a breakdown. So that was like, you know, probably one of the first times that she had to deal with it. And I never knew about that before. And, it, you know, it just shocked me how hard it must have been. Like she thought everyone was fine. And all of a sudden, you know, we drove down to visit with the psychiatrist and I was told my husband suffered from depression. But, you know, that he had the tools he had the tools because he was good at sport and exercise that he had the tools himself to, 
you know, look after himself and manage it. I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't really know that this was as serious as it was. And But yeah, he was a good dad. Like, you know, he used to play football and mostly good-natured, you know. There would always have been times where him and mum would have fought and, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. We just thought it was normal. But looking back, it, it was because he had depression. He just didn't really know or he wasn't diagnosed or whatever. I remember another incident. I went out for, for dinner with a friend and we'd had a few drinks and I was late home. And when I came home, he was in bed and um, I had enjoyed my night. You know, I had enjoyed being out and, and um, just girly gossip. And and he got mad with me. He, he really got mad with me. And I suppose I reacted and I thought, gosh, like, what did I do wrong now? You know, like, it's not a crime to go out and have dinner and stay and gossip a bit longer and have a few drinks. And I wouldn't ever have been a drinker. Um, but um, he had got mad with me and I just, and I kind of thought, I suppose, well, maybe that's something I shouldn't do again, you know. And I suppose you tend to go along with things, uh, maybe to see, will that help? I was probably about 15 when I first realised my dad had depression, but I think my mum kind of kept kept us away from it before then, you know, kind of shielded us from it. She gave up work. We always thought, you know, it was to look after us because she was sick herself. But, you know, she kind of told me during the interview the main reason was, you know, she needed to be at home so that she could look after him so that things would be all right at home for us. She just couldn't leave us and couldn't, you know away there was serious concern about my I felt myself um, was I going to live or not to look after you know rare, rare our children and at that stage I remember speaking with a doctor and you know he wanted to know what was going on in my life he could see I had been under tremendous stress under tremendous strain he asked to see my husband and when he came in he could see clearly that he was depressed. He uh, prescribed medication and I said, look, I've lived with addiction. I, I don't, are these tablets addictive? And he said, no, but they were. I kept taking those tablets, one of those tablets a day for five years. After five years, I, I asked for a review, you know, what do I do? Do I increase them? Do I decrease them? Do I come off them? And he said, well, what we'll do is we'll change your medication. I said, well, so am I going to come off this old stuff that I've been on for the last five years? He said, yeah. And I said, do I just come off it or do I or do I do it gradually? What do I do? He said, do you can come off it because you're on this new stuff. It was described to me by a, by a psychologist. You know, it's just the same as, as going coming off uh, heroin. Your, your whole body goes in. It's really body shock. This was in 2005. Within a couple of months, I had a withdrawal breakdown. My son... One day I was out playing pool in the garage and he said to me, Dad, are you depressed? And he didn't realise that I was actually struggling to stay standing. Well, the first the first time I realised, I remember we were playing pool in the garage and, you know, he was just, he could barely stand up straight, you know, he was just like, he just wasn't the same person, you know, and I asked, just said to him, you know, are you depressed? Like, And um, 
you know, he said he was. And I think he just started crying, you know, and um, after that, it was he went into the hospital pretty soon. I always knew something was wrong, but I wasn't until then. He had a breakdown that I kind of realized, you know, what he, what was going on, and he went to a psychiatric hospital, so it was kind of obvious from there what it was, you know. What happened gradually was my, my whole system started shutting down. I couldn't uh, remember anything. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. So I was carted off to a psychiatric hospital. And we went to St. Pat's and waited and talked to the doctor separately. And then I went up with him to the ward. The nurse took away his razor and his belt and his laces. And I suppose those images you would sometimes see on a television or on a film, but when it's reality, it's, it's hard. When it was time for me to go, my husband just kept saying my name over and over again. He, he just broke down and cried his eyes out and just kept saying my name over and over again. And I just had to leave quickly. And I was laying there in a bed for I don't know how long and they didn't know what to do with me. I'll never forget it. The, the words can't describe what I went through in that hospital. There was a nurse. The nurse was assigned to me on the first day. I never saw her in, in, in seven weeks, not even once. It would have been nice if somebody had just sat down with me for 15 minutes, talked me through what normally happens, what usually happens in situations like this. The following Sunday, I know a friend drove me up and I had brought a little box of chocolates and I got two cups of tea in the canteen and we went out and sat on a bench in the garden and I just kept unwrapping the sweets and handing to him, them to him and just saying, just eat it, just eat it. And I could see people sitting on a bench opposite us watching us. And that lady I met, I met the following week um, on the corridor of the hospital and she came over to me and she said, was that your, um, was that your father um, you were with the other day? I said, no, it was my husband. She just said it was so sad to watch because he had turned into an old man. And I know that for that time, he depended on me completely. I just kept him going and that was a huge responsibility. So he, he I remember at some stage, I must have phoned and talked to a nurse who could give me the few minutes just to describe to me the, um, the routine. And I remember feeling an awful lot more positive after I spoke to her. It was a confusing time for all of us, especially for Sean, who was nine at the time. I was in third class. Mum didn't tell me that he... She didn't say that it was a mental thing. But I remember being in hospital, visiting him. He was in a special ward. No one was physically sick, and I didn't understand like, why this was a hospital no one had operations or whatever you know, so I didn't really get that it was a mental ward and then it came time for him to come home the day before our eldest started his exams and he came home but gosh that summer was hard because he wasn't really well I had been given no clear directions or advice as to how to um, look after him and I suppose bit by bit we, we got back to normal or as normal as you could but it was a defining it was a defining time for us I remember when we started to go uptown afterwards just up to do the bits of shopping and I know I know he was so self-conscious and I used to just have to hold his hand just to help him even walk along the street 
So I, I fought it and I fought it and I exercised every day and I ate well and I went to every lecture, I did everything I was told, I took my medication, I did everything to get myself back, to fight the fight back. I call that's what I called it, the fight back. And then it came time to go back to work and that was hard, that was very hard and you know, it's a very brave thing to do, it's a very courageous thing to do, to go from, you know, being in a hospital and your colleagues knowing about it and then returning to work. You know, there were the few who were able to come and make good eye contact with him and ask him how he was and welcome him back and there were others that they averted their eyes. Are we supposed to feel embarrassed or are we supposed to feel ashamed? And the answer to that is no. My mum kind of says that he's the patient but we're the victims, you know. Like, we suffer with it, but we don't have a counsellor, a therapist, a GP or a consultant, you know, to medicate us, to talk to us about it, to help us cope with it. You know, we just have each other. Like, there's no support group or anything. Um, which is, I think, there should be something like that, you know. There are no cards. They don't make cards for somebody who's had a breakdown. There's nothing sexy about depression. I know there's nothing sexy about any illness. But depression in particular, depression isn't discussed. It's a taboo subject. I have found that when, you, when you're open about it and speak to people, they don't know what to say, they don't know what to do. And certainly, they don't come and support. There's an organisation for everything. There isn't an organisation for what I'm going through. You know, we've lost friends over this. I suppose people don't know what to do, and when you don't know what to do, sometimes the easiest thing to do is nothing. Well, there were people, you know, that would have been close family friends when we were going, growing up, and then all of a sudden we just wouldn't see them anymore and we just wouldn't talk about them. And I didn't really know why that was, but now I realise, like, Maybe my parents told them, you know, oh, Peter's got a mental illness and they just didn't want to deal with that or they didn't know how, so they just stopped coming around, stopped calling, you know. And I suppose there would have been isolation, like none of my mum's friends would have known what she was dealing with or whatever. The hardest feeling of all is the complete isolation. And above any illness, it's one that you need the patient and the family, you need not to be isolated. Not everyone stays away. Those that do come are greatly appreciated. My mum has one friend whose husband also has depression. We started on Monday. We had the five o'clock for his breakfast and I think he laughed until about two o'clock. She often comes over. They sit in the kitchen, drink tea and chat and bitch about their husbands. It means a lot to her. Sure he wouldn't. And, you know, he's, he's pissed off that we all know. So I just said, How did the past, how's the fasting going? Will we do dinner now? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that. You know, when, when, when you can see similar behaviour, you say, well, OK, well, it's not me. It's not me. And again, I suppose, as two women, our focus would be very much looking after family and getting the dinner and all of those boring routine jobs that are actually more important than you would realise. Finding friends to talk to about this can be difficult for all of us, especially when you're a teenager, like Emer and Sean. 
more just afraid that if it, if my friends knew, then you know I'd lose them. You don't you don't want to be alienated in, in school because of what your dad like is. It's probably actually made me closer to like the other people in my family, and you can't really talk about it with anyone outside the family because there is like such a stigma attached to it. No one understands it as well as the family, and we all kind of try and keep each other, you know, try and help each other deal with it. You know, we would always be close, but I I would try and spend as much time around with the guys. You know, they're friends as well as siblings. You know. I found tremendous fulfillment and tremendous joy and love and warmth and pleasure in, in being a mother. It is my greatest happiness. My mum's nearly, she's a nurse to him. She's, she's a teacher to us, you know, teaching us how to, you know, deal with it, how to take care of ourselves as well. At the same time, she's, you know, trying to do her best and, um, you know, feed the family and whatever. And she's had her own share of health problems and stuff, but, um, She's kept going. Well, the campaign to get a puppy started around my birthday when I was 50 earlier in the year. And, um... I wasn't sure. I'd never had a dog. So anyway, we agreed eventually to get the get a puppy for your 21st. So um, Muffins arrived and a tiny little puppy. But he's been wonderful and he probably has been um, a great comfort to all of us and a great distraction. And and you can have a full, I'm convinced you can have a full conversation with him. If you talk to him or tell him stories, I, I'm, I'm like, you're all amused because I talk to him as if I was talking to you when you were babies. It has brought that back. <laughs> and you talk to him and the ears cock and the tail wags like mad and he comes over to lick your hands and lick your face and everything. And uh, he's a dote. He's a dote and I think we're all mad about him. We've had him about six months. He's a miniature Yorkie. And my mum actually said the other day he's the same size that I was when I was a baby. So he's kind of, he's the baby of the family really now. Oh, look at that. Oh, when you come up now, we'll have a little cuddle. And I mean, he can pick up, I mean, the first, I think the first time we got him, we had him about a day. You know, things weren't great with dad. You know, he was getting really angry and muffins. You know, you could see it in him that he was kind of scared or whatever. And he, you know, if you were holding him, he'd, kind of cowering against you you know and you can kind of pick up on the mood of the house and you know, uh, I think I read somewhere as well before we got him uh, they can sense when someone's f feeling down you know and the, you know, dogs will try and comfort them you know so uh, he's great like that you know he, someone's not feeling the best he'll go over and lick their face or something In many ways, we are a happy family, but the reality is we live in the shadow of my dad's illness. It's an unpredictable condition, and we're never sure exactly how each day is going to pan out. If he gets angry, it comes out in dark moods and words. When, when he's, you know, particularly depressed or whatever, it kind of manifests itself in aggression. 
and that's you know it does take a toll on you so much especially like even if it was directed at you or directed at you know your brothers or sisters or your mom or whatever that is really difficult he'd get mad at a little thing but it would be it would signify a bigger issue you know um I'm trying to think of examples but like there'd be say there was a problem in school like he's a teacher he works in a school and um, if there was a problem there he wouldn't get mad about that but he'd get mad about say someone at home did something that reminded him of something that happened in school he'd get mad about that and he'd fixate on that you know he wouldn't be able to deal with the the root cause you know it'd be little things that would set him off little things that he'd fixate on you know it's it's a very peculiar thing in in the way it comes and the way it goes like it comes, it's a gradual thing. It, it's sort of nibbling away at you and then eventually it explodes. It's where a whole lot of little pressures all arrive at the same time. You know, they're gradually building up, coming from all directions and they eventually meet in the middle and boom, you can't take any more. It's over, You've just, you just crack up. A number of months ago we were here in at home and um, unfortunately it all came to a head with us just something sparked him off and all the rage and all the anger and all the resentment and all of the frustrations um, they all came pouring out to us and it was a terrible night it was absolutely terrible one of our children she just got into a panic attack and she literally couldn't breathe and even with that he couldn't see that his aggression just was was way, way, way out of line. You, you don't even, when you're in it, you, you don't even know. You know, somebody said to me, I was depressed in the middle of it. I'd be offended because you don't know that you're in it. You think you're okay. And then if you're getting high and wanting to do things, you, when somebody pulled you up on it, you'd be offended as well. We just stuck together and left the room and... At some stage in the afternoon, um, he left. The girls had seen him walking. I suppose we, I thought that that, would, that meant he was going to go for maybe a long walk and hopefully would cool off and come back calmer and you know, feel a little bit better and that we might, things might be okay again. But unfortunately, we realised that he actually had gone missing. And we waited. I felt at this stage, I knew that he hadn't taken money, he hadn't taken a phone, he hadn't taken keys. I had to call the guards. And um, we had two sergeants. Two sergeants came down and sat in the kitchen with me that night at about 12 o'clock. Between us, we figured out that he had um, his hiking boots and a waterproof jacket. We went to bed and at about 5 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call. This guard, 20, 25 miles away. They had found him walking along the road in the dark and we drove down you know and i got oh gosh this is a new this is a new low i came home and um, he just went upstairs and went to bed for the whole of the next day the tension in the house continued so in the evening i made dinner and we sat and had it and he came down he got up and came down for food he hadn't come near us all day and i just said i don't know what i said and he exploded again so i think our plan was at that stage to try and say nothing you know you 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 do have to accept when there is no talking and when there is no reasoning when no matter what you say or do is going to cause a reaction if we could see that he wasn't in a good mood or whatever we well i would anyway try not to 
stirring things up. I try to be quiet and just just be polite to him or whatever because um, anything could set him off, you know. Like, he'd, he could get really angry, get a bit aggressive, I suppose. Um, but I used to kind of, you know, kind of challenge him on it, like, you know, why are you being like this? You know, you're just destroying the whole family or whatever. But that didn't really help. And I can see my sisters, they kind of used to, oh, recently they were always kind of making comments or whatever. They did think, like, oh, we're not, we're not going to let him get away with this, you know. But um, it's not really helping, you know. And then after after dinner, we went down to watch something on TV. And um, he did come down and apologise, you know, that it obviously had registered with him that it was our youngest son's birthday and that. And that was two months ago, two months ago. And it, it, it has been very difficult. When he's, you know, in a clear mood or whatever, he does kind of, you know, say, how, you know, how hard it is, you know, and you guys don't have the same support system. But, you know, at the same time, when he's depressed or whatever, he doesn't feel like that, you know, it's just all about him, which is the, the illness, you know, it's a selfish illness. I don't know, I think it's kind of gone past the stage. Like, I, I do, in a ways, I do feel sorry for him that, you know, it must be a terrible thing to live with. But at the same time, after it happening again and again, you know, you kind of stop feeling sorry and just are a bit sick of it and that, so. I don't blame him. I didn't realise on the day I said I do that he was damaged. Yet I know when I was sick, there was nobody kinder to me. I know that it's spring when it's time to start putting the clothes out, hang the clothes out on the line again. I know that the first patch he will have weeded and cleared in the garden will be down beside the clothesline. And he'll have planted some bulbs or some flowers for me to enjoy when I hang out the clothes, or even better. If he sees me coming with a big basket, he'll just take them. And sometimes it's just those little things that remind you of the person you married. It's a whole series of little things that get you out of it. Like, for example, uh, there's a picture here in the hall of my wife and my four children and my mum and my dad. And I always look at it, and I look at it, you know, regularly, but I couldn't look at it when I was sick. I just couldn't look at it. You know, I knew that I was letting my parents down. And uh, about two or three days ago, I, uh, I, did, I did pluck up courage to look at the picture. And that did something. And then one of the mornings, my wife started talking to me. She just asked me, how did I feel? So that was another little thing, positive thing coming in. I came across another photograph of my two little girls. You know, they must have been about four and two. And I said, that's all they are, just little girls, you know. And that kind of sunk in, you know, because it would be particularly hard on the girls and my wife. Like, directly after it, like, if there's been a particularly bad spot, like, I don't feel well at all, I don't sleep well. Um, Like, I think a few weeks ago, I was, like, really down and stuff, and I just wasn't myself. And well, I, I do feel better now because, you know, just from from going to counselling or whatever you do feel better about it but like straight after it, it is really hard because just the mood in the house is really tense and no one really like he doesn't acknowledge it himself so it's as if he wants to kind of just everyone to act normal and pretend it didn't happen so that can be kind of hurtful it probably goes back to childhood you know where you need for a child to be pretty strong they need to grow up in a very loving home 
or sometimes I think of it as a, of a plant, you know, if you're planting, I'm into gardening, if you, if you don't give the, the plant the correct conditions at the start, it just, it won't even, it won't, it won't grow, it won't germinate properly. I do, I do, Connor, but, but I've done an awful lot of work on myself. The thing is still there, you know, it's kind of, the condition is still there. As You know, you've asked me a number of times, you know, you've asked me, are we going to have this again? Will it come back? Of course I don't want it to come back. None of us want it to come back. So I don't think, I don't imagine it coming back as bad again. So there's, been, there's been a lot going on in my, not in my personal life, in my, in my work life for the last couple of years. I think this was kind of a, an explosion about it. In Ireland today, one in three people visiting a GP have some sort of mental complaint. There are around 20,000 people admitted to psychiatric institutions every year. For each one of these, there is a group of family and friends directly affected by the illness. In some ways, my family is lucky that we have each other. I know that nobody makes me laugh like you can. And that's what has kept me going. I have so much love for my children that I'm not going to let that other stuff pull me down. But I suppose there is a genetic predisposition because it stems from a chemical imbalance or whatever. And then there's also an element of learned behaviour. Like my granddad, my dad's dad, he had a mental illness and then he was an alcoholic. That's how he dealt with it. And then my dad, you know, picked it up from that. And then, but I, I think like, you know, it's gotten gradually weaker you know like my dad had to deal with his dad being drunk and falling around the place and but we've had to deal with our dad remembering that and being depressed about it and we've kind of just had to you know I don't think it's going to be as bad like hopefully it's not going to be as, be as bad like, but we've had our moment to help us and we've all well me and my two sisters have all seen therapists just to kind of talk about that exactly that like so that we don't we learn how to deal with it now and it doesn't affect us in the future so hopefully that won't happen. I feel a tremendous responsibility to try and break that cycle for our own children. My only wish growing up was that I said I would never, you know, be like that with my own children. And the, the disappointing thing for me is that I've turned around and did the same thing as my father. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do, to play a musical instrument, to have that. It just, it just really does you good. You know, there's just something about it that is different to anything else you would do. I remember playing it when you were young. You'd be tucked up in bed at night. I didn't realise, you know, when you were children, you were children and you'd be in bed at night. And I used to sit and play for a while, an hour, an hour and a half, you know, you could just lose yourself in it. And I didn't realise you were listening. And I remember I was playing one night and then I stopped and you just called out, Mummy, keep playing. You know, which was a lovely, you know, was a lovely thought. I didn't realise, you know, that I suppose I was in playing it for myself, just my own enjoyment. Um, but it was lovely to think that you were falling asleep listening to me playing the piano as well. Um, I suppose really it's a symbol of... of of how things were and how things have been. But I don't play that often. <laughs> <laughs> 